Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff, joined here by Max Linsky. Aaron is away this week. How are you? How are you, Aaron? Aaron, you're not Aaron. How are you, Max? <laughs> it's okay. I can be. Should I be Aaron? Should I pretend to be Aaron? <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to go well. <laughs> uh, Evan, who did you have on the show this week? This week, I had the privilege of having two guests on the show at the same time. They were Ben Austin. Ben, a lot of our listeners will probably know, he's a longtime magazine writer. He also wrote a book called High Risers, a great book about Cabrini Green, the housing project in Chicago. He writes a lot about Chicago. He lives in Chicago. He's from Chicago. I had him and Khalil Gibran Muhammad, who is Ben's best friend. They have a podcast together, which is called Some of My Best Friends Are. And Khalil is a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard, at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a writer. He's got a book called The Condemnation of Blackness. He also contributed one of the essays to the 1619 Project in the New York Times Magazine, which we talk about a bit. And the two of them have this show where they talk about all kinds of issues. As you will know, if you listen to this show or their show, Ben is white, Khalil is black, and that is part of the theme of the show is sort of talking through big issues through the lens of their friendship. So I wanted to kind of dig into how that friendship came about and both of their careers and uh, how they approach this show. Uh, I love the idea that this is just what, you know, 99% of podcasts are, which is just like two friends chatting, except it's two incredibly intelligent friends chatting who have a quite a <laughs> uh, bit of serious things to discuss. Yeah, this is this is basically the highest level of achievement brought together of yeah. two friends. Two friends chatting that you could yeah. you could find. It's really a great show. I've, I really enjoy it. It is one of those podcasts where two friends are talking, but they're incredibly brilliant friends. <laughs> yeah. We have uh, some incredibly brilliant friends, Evan. New friends at Vox. That's who we're making the podcast with these days. And uh, we thank them for their partnership. Love those Vox folks. Now here's Evan with Khalil Gibran Muhammad and Ben Austin. Khalil and Ben, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Hey, hey, it's great to be here. 
fantastic to be on the show, Evan. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. We got three locations here. So Ben, you're in Chicago, I assume, at home. Yep, south side of Chicago, at home. And Khalil, let's describe a little where you are located at this moment. I am in Flat Earth America, <laughs> literally and figuratively. I'm in my first hotel room since COVID oh, wow. in Evansville, Indiana, just shy of the Ohio River and just north of Tennessee. And what, what brings you out there? I am here to give a, uh, I guess, a diversity keynote dinner speech uh, this evening for the Evansville Human Rights Commission. They're making a case for forging ahead in light of all that's happened in the country. So courageous on their part. Wow. Well, I appreciate you taking some of the time while you're in a remote location to have this yes. conversation. I've listened to every episode of you guys' podcast. I'm a completist all right. uh, of the show. <laughs> and I want to get to talking about it, but I want to first start back at the beginning because I want to know how this friendship started. And then I want to kind of see how your careers evolved in parallel. So maybe first tell me a little bit, one of you, maybe Ben, you start about the neighborhood that you grew up in and how you guys met. There's a mention in the show of a computer store, but it's not fully fleshed out. So we grew up on the south side of Chicago. We went to school together. We went to high school together in Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood where the University of Chicago is. The South Side is predominantly black. Hyde Park historically is more diverse. I grew up a little bit further south in South Shore. And so in this interesting community, uh, we went to the public high school together. And in ninth grade, I had been working at, at a grocery store and I took a, a second job at a, a computer store, which was a new thing back then. And my boss walks in and it's Khalil. It's this guy who's a year younger than me. He's about eight inches shorter than me. And, and I, had like, I had like the worst fucking job in the world, which was these five and a quarter floppy disks, which, you know, nobody younger than 35 will even know what I'm talking about. And I had to put labels on them, you know? That's <laughs> like, right. Like, That's and, right. And then you got paid like, you know, a fraction of a penny. Piecemeal work. Piecemeal work. Like, like 10, <laughs> 10 cents a disk. 10, no, it's 10 cents <laughs> for like 100 or something. It was something crazy. I can't even... Like I remember, yeah, it was, it was yeah. definitely some, some rough work. But Khalil yeah. was this incredibly precocious and like already established person. He, at age like 14, he was the accountant for this computer store. I had already been working there for a couple of years. So the backstory is that the guy who opened it was a graduate school dropout. He'd been a history PhD student at the University of Chicago. Took classes with my father. Oh, I, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, See? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So his name is Jonathan Shemaine. He's an old friend at this point. I met him when I was 12. And the broader context is that he'd gone to UFC to get a PhD in history, decided that he was going to finish at the master's level and open this local computer store serving the University of Chicago community. It was brilliant because there were no stores you could go into and buy a personal computer. Yeah. They just didn't exist. There's there was no, no there's Best no Buy. There's, there's no, no internet. There's no internet. There's no Circuit City. There's none of this. You know, there were mainframe computers and then, you know, whatever the boutique IBM version for someone really rich could have at home, that's what there was. So in 1984, the same year the Apples invented, this guy, John Shemaine from Edison, New Jersey, opens this computer store. 
And because he's a kid at heart, he hires a bunch of people who are like five to 10 years younger than him. I was, you know, basically 12 years younger than him. And that's, that's where I started working at 12. I built the furniture. I painted the ceiling. This place used to be, Ben, remember, it used to be an African clothing store. Oh, that's before, right. Uh, I mean, it was kind of like a, a shell of a place. And uh, lo and behold, Ben and I had met briefly playing tennis together because John was also a part-time tennis coach. And one day Ben, you know, gets hired and, and kind of the rest is history. Yeah. When you guys became friends, did you have similar interests? Were you projecting already in the future? I want to be this or I want to be that or I want to be an academic. I want to be a journalist. Like what, what were you guys talking about at that time in terms of where you thought you would end up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, we've actually thought about this a lot and talked about it a lot. I'm thinking back, you know, the 80s were so apolitical in a lot of ways. You know, the, even, even though many of the adults around us in this black community were part of the civil rights movement, there was so little talk about activism and protest. And we grew up without sort of much political consciousness. I mean, so like, even though we evolved at some point, that wasn't part of our lives. So I don't, we didn't really talk about the future in that way at all. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't have even answered it that way because I was thinking less about sort of like, our commitments, our political commitments and how they're expressed in our work, I would be like, I don't remember ever talking to you about anything related to like the future of work. <laughs> I mean, like we both valued work. I loved working. I loved making money. Ben mostly worked at a neighborhood grocery store down the street from the computer store. And so we worked there together too. I ended up working there as a deli clerk. I had worked there for like five years already and you came in and made more than me from day one. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there was and like, I had I was more like, responsibility. I was like, oh. <laughs> but my, my point, Evan, is like we were kids and I, we probably at some point talked about like where we might go to college, but I don't even remember us having a conversation. We didn't coordinate that either. So we were living in the moment. You know, we weren't thinking about future careers together, at least. Which is also fascinating when we look back at that political moment, like so much was going on in, the, in our world. You know, I mean, you think about the Reagan America, you think about, you know, Harold Washington was being elected mayor, the first black mayor of Chicago. Things were happening. Our parents, my parents were involved in that campaign. Um, but, but we weren't having these larger discussions. I guess we sort of inherently knew much of this stuff and we're, we're navigating spaces. Yeah, but we weren't political or you know, yeah, very, yeah. very thoughtful, I guess you would say, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, my father, for example, Evan, uh, when I was in ninth grade, he was sent off to cover the famine in Ethiopia, which was an international scandal. I mean, We Are the World came out, what, 1985? In, the, in like the summer of 1985, and it was one of the first sort of celebrity fundraising international let's help people somewhere in the world who are suffering events that have become much more common these days and just to emphasize ben's point like we had these parents <laughs> who were like working directly or deeply invested in these big issues that were happening both domestically and abroad but it just wasn't it didn't trickle down it wasn't conscious for us i'll say that you know there, there was a teacher strike maybe our sophomore year of high school and, you know, this is Chicago public schools and the teacher strike lasted like one week, then two weeks, then three weeks. And my father was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not having this. He was a, a professor of African history at the University of Chicago. And he was like, come to the library, Reagenstein at the University of Chicago every day, you two knuckleheads and sit there, read this history book and write a paper for me. Yep. Yep. 
And it was it was kind of like an ultimatum. He basically said, if you don't do this, Ben's going to I'm going to take Ben out of Kenwood, the public high school and send him to lab. The Not private. lab. No, no. It's because my mother oh. taught at another private school. It would have been free okay. to go there. And right, to Latin, yeah. Latin on the on the north yeah. side, yeah. So, so we were like, okay, I guess we got to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think we still had aspirate. We were engaged with material and ideas, and that was exciting. We read this book, The Crucial Decade, about the 1950s. You yeah, know, I, Golden. Eisenhower, yes. America. I remember it. You know, and like talking about it. We would like. I remember we would read and then do push-ups in the in the stacks a little bit and like walk around and talk. But you know, we we read this book together, and I, I think that was the first time we had like an intellectual sort of sharing you know, where we right. were engaged in that way. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the questions that I feel like comes up for me because you've, through the show, you've introduced to the world your friendship. And then when I look then at your writing and your scholarship, you've both, like Khalil, you've studied and written extensively about incarceration, the role of systematic racism in incarceration. Ben, you have written and are writing about that kind of topic as well. And the question that comes to mind for me is like how much are these in parallel and because you're friends and how much of it is sort of a coincidence that you sort of came together around similar topics in your work yeah I, th I think it was in the air in a lot of ways I mean so we're, we're describing our world that we weren't consciously political but you know Farrakhan's kids went to our high school and Jesse Jackson was my neighbor and Khalil is the great-grandson of Elijah Muhammad and there's an anti-apartheid movement, which we're hearing about, and you know, that my father is involved with. I think so there was some foundation in us regardless, even if we weren't talking about it. You asked the question about like, how do we end up in the same place? And the truth is by very different routes. So Ben's right, there was a lot in the air that we were breathing, but practically speaking, uh, my father was a photojournalist. And so while I mentioned he was covering an Ethiopian famine in 1985, by the time he moved to New York City in 1981, he was working, he was actually 1980, he started working for Newsday. I would visit him every summer and I was going on assignments with him. I was covering Mayor Koch press conferences. Wow. I was covering Broadway play openings. We were going and doing profiles of people like uh, Ole Cassini, the famous fashion designer, Lawrence Fishburne covering sports events. And so as a kid, loading his cameras with film, right, not memory cards, but film, which always made me incredibly nervous because I'm thinking if I screw this up and he doesn't get these pictures, I'm dead. I'm a dead kid. Wow. So, um, so to some extent, that was formative, but it wasn't intentional in the way that I'm thinking, like, this is going to lead to this. And I think what Ben isn't saying is that you can't help but grow up in the household of one of the country's leading East African historians, a, a historian of post-colonial, of colonial and post-colonial Africa, and not be seeing something and not hearing and listening and learning something about how the world works. It's interesting. For me, I think it was also negotiating segregated space. You know, like just moving through the south side of Chicago and seeing like, you know, this part is this way, you know, it's predominantly black and here I am, this white kid. And then I move here and it's all white. What's going on? What's the here? You're talking about college? Anywhere outside of Hyde Park. Like here I, here I am, like I suddenly, you know, I remember taking a cab back to Hyde Park from the north side one time and the cab driver being like, ah, so you live in the jungle, huh? And I'm like, damn, the jungle. Oh shit. Like other people are thinking about this space this way. And so like wanting to solve for that, 
and not having like that, that feeling as a kid. Like I wasn't like, let's go figure this out, Khalil, and fight against injustice. You know, I was like, right. but like we lived in this space that was this constructed in some way. And as time went on, I was like, I wanted to figure that out. And I became more and more interested in that. Yeah. We were also like pre-Michael Jordan Bulls fans. And so, you know, when, when you grow up with kind of a terrible basketball team or a terrible home sports team, you develop a chip on your shoulder. You want to defend your city. So what Ben was really saying, it's like he wanted to defend the South Side of Chicago as a white kid, you know, who could say, hey, this is my home, right? And to translate that to, to a broader community. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So I'm not going to be able to go through all the steps of each of your careers, even though I would like to, but I did want to find out, was there something that sort of strongly tipped you in the direction of what you wanted the, the focus of your work to be? Was there a moment for you where you said, you know what, I know what I, what I want to do with this. I know where I want to take this. 
Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was the beating of Rodney King. I mean, hands down. It wasn't a singular moment in the sense that there weren't things that hadn't happened before, mostly in college, to be frank. I mean, it was a lot about college in the late 1980s, early 1990s. A lot of elite colleges, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, were embroiled in these debates about affirmative action, about hate speech on campus. And I sort of stepped into this space in Philadelphia and was completely swept away by it because it wasn't what I had experienced in Hyde Park growing up in the community that Ben and I have been talking about, which was very integrated. So it was a shocking environment to have people publicly and outwardly question whether you belonged. And so once the Rodney King beating happened my junior year, and Black students organized as a kind of solidarity protest. We sort of walked from campus down Market Street, which is the corridor of the city. We were jeered just before we left by some of our white uh, student peers. And that series of experiences and then the acquittal and everything that came in the wake of Rodney King left me with way more questions than I went into college prepared to even ask. And so coming out of college, I was having a crisis of conscience about my own place in the world, my own career choice by the time I was choosing to be an accountant. Uh, And ultimately, I pivoted after a couple of years and decided to study basically American history, Black history, the criminal justice system. And Ben, for you, I was going to say, I know a little bit more about your background, partly because we have exchanged emails for many years, even though we've never actually met. Like I pitched you when you were a magazine editor, you pitched me when I was a magazine editor. Somehow we never got any of the stories to actually work (laughs) out. But I don't know what kind of first tipped you into journalism, because I know you were a teacher for a little bit for a while before you started. You know, I, I just I knew I wanted to write in some form. And I knew I loved reading and thinking about stories and how they're told. And I didn't know what form that would take. I mean, so it's interesting hearing Khalil talk about his father, whom I knew very well growing up. I didn't know any reporters. So I didn't think of it as a career. So I didn't know quite what to do with this interest. And so the first thing I did was, you know, I I had a Fulbright to go to South Africa and I studied with writers there, J.M. Coetzee and Andre Brink. But I came back to the United States and I became a high school teacher. And I liked it a lot. I loved it. It was probably the most meaningful work I've ever done. And at some point I was like, oh, shit, I want to do something that's actually much more selfish and maybe less useful, Um, which is like I want to publish stuff. So at age 30, I became an unpaid intern at Harper's Magazine. Very humbling, I'll say, (laughs) In in a million ways. And... And, and, you know, doing that work and figuring it out and, and sort of having a completely new education, like a, ho- a whole new sort of canon of writers and ideas. And as I was doing editing and starting to write more, of my interest just naturally turned to Chicago. I mean, that's what I wanted to write about. And that's what I wanted to explore. And that's what I sort of knew in some way. So, you know, I wrote my first book about this public housing complex in Chicago called Cabrini Green. And it was being torn down, these 23 towers that had stood for about 60 years. And sort of to mark that moment, like, holy cow, what's going on? You know, I really think of you as kind of the voice of Chicago in many ways, you know, when there's like 
Laquan McDonald or if there's an issue and like, I know you're going to write a piece about it, or I hope you're going to write a piece about it. And I'm sort of waiting for you to do that. And obviously the book is an even larger expansion of that. But did you always know? Because I think when I first started talking to you, you were living in Nashville, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to go re-engage with your hometown? And, no. And... I mean, I'll say that you you might feel the same way and maybe that one of the great things about doing long form narrative work is the sort of generalist stuff too. What a delight to sort of like explore all these different ideas and to learn about new things, to suddenly go to a town in Kentucky where they make Toyotas and to learn about this non-union company town. Amazing, like to just dive in there and to learn everything you possibly can or to write about a tennis player or to write about college football in Alabama. I mean, so I love doing all those varied things. I just love it. I mean, it's like teaching in a way, like you get to sort of read all these books, which you just, you know, every year you're like, I love that book. Yeah, but but like writing something longer is a much bigger commitment. And so for that, I was like, I don't want to spend five or 10 years on, on football in Alabama. You know, it better be super meaningful. And that's where sort of the Chicago stuff came up. You know, I, I was living in Nashville and then you know, as a family decided that we wanted to stay permanently somewhere and we came back to our hometown. My wife and I are both from the same neighborhood. We actually, all three of us went to high school together, Khalil, my wife and me. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, this is where we wanted to raise our kids. We wanted to be on the south side of Chicago. Khalil, for your part, I mean, you're obviously you've done a bunch of academic writing, but you're also publishing for a popular audience. I'm sort of interested in the balance of those ideas. And how does your sort of institution feel about that? Like, is it a good thing for you to be out there publishing in popular, non-academic environments? Or is there some downside to that? Okay, so it's just us, right? No one's listening. <laughs> no one's going to listen. To that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so there is this myth that academics who write for big audiences are penalized for it in terms of their careers. It really is a kind of myth. Yeah. There is truth in that if you have not established a clear record of scholarly achievement and you are writing popularly uh, in lieu of that, then there is a penalty. You might not get tenure. You might not earn the respect of your colleagues. And respect but, of like that you're not serious. Like that's the word <laughs> I always hear. You're not serious. Right. Well, but again, it's like, it's a both and problem. So it just depends on at what point you take on that work, that popular writing. If you take it on after you've established, you know, that you are a serious scholar and that people can see the body of your work and say, you know, that's really impressive, then nobody really cares. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you, you know, you'd arguably say there's a degree of envy because it's not easy to do. If you're Jill Lepore and you're truly Wonder Woman, then it is easy to do. But if you're like most people, taking on assignments to write op-eds, longer essays, whatever it happens to be, tends to create a level of stress that is totally voluntary. So unlike a writer where it might be your day job, or unlike a writer where you're consumed by the passion of expressing yourself in this medium, most academics you know, have a day job and oftentimes very consuming, either because you're teaching and advising students and working on other long-term research projects. Uh, and so I've had this conversation with a bunch of people over the years. They're like, well, you know, how do you choose to put that stuff down and do this other thing? And to be honest with you, it's because I never went into the academy with the goal of only talking to academics. 
So for me, it was always about speaking to as broad an audience as possible. Can we talk a little bit about the 1619 essay? Because I'm, I'm interested in how that came about. And I feel like it leads into the show, your show a little bit too, because you guys talk about it in one of the episodes and some of the repercussions of it. But first, how did it actually come about that you wrote that piece? The piece is on the history of sugar, basically, and labor conditions and sugar and race in yeah. the United States. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who conceived of the project, pulled together about a dozen historians on a call uh, a few months before the magazine published. So this might have been March or April. And it was just a brainstorming session. So Jake Silverstein was there, a few other editors, Nicole, and about 12 scholars, some of whom were slavery historians, some uh, like myself, criminal justice, a broad range of subject matter expertise. And we just threw ideas at the New York Times folks and said, you know, if you were going to do this, these are the things we think should be included in the magazine. Uh, in my case, I mentioned sugar because cotton was sort of already on the table as the kind of most well-known and economically important slave-grown crop uh, in U.S. history. And so I said, but you should also... Keep in mind, sugar is important because it's the whole reason why Europeans came in the first place. And so because it was a brainstorming session, that was the end of that. Uh, I made a few other recommendations, but then I got a call about two weeks later saying, hey, would you be interested in writing the sugar essay? And I said, well, there's probably some other people who uh, know that history a little better than I do. They say, well, but we want you to do it. Now, I had already written a bunch for the uh, book review section and a couple of op-eds. So you know, I think... Part of the strategy for the Times was marrying people who they felt confident could write for a New York Times audience, even if they had subject matter expertise or didn't. And Ben, when you found out about this, were you like, that's my world? That's my, what are you doing in here? <laughs> I think we've always had a little bit of that relationship. You know, but, uh, we call it competitive support. Competitive support. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I remember one time when we were in, in high school, you know, some colleges would come to our high school because, you know, here's this pretty good public high school in Chicago. And I was like, I want to go to this school. And we get there and they're like, look at me and look at Khalil. And they're like, yeah, we want Khalil. I was like, that, that makes sense. There were a lot of Ben's in other schools. I was like, yeah, I, I got that. I understand. I want, yeah, I would pick him too. So, and this, he was perfect for this. I mean, it made total sense. I think as a historian on this project, he also gave it a lot of heft. You know, like, yeah. I mean, that, the, the criticisms that come out later that there weren't, you know, questioning the history. You can't really question the history when they're historians like Khalil who were part of it from, from the beginning. Yeah. Well, you say can't, but. Uh... No, well, can't. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah you're, you're well said. Like, you could, you could question anything, but, but That's right. you're able to defend yourself you know, yeah, justly. Yeah. So, Khalil, when you were working on it, did you feel like this is going to land in a very big way and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a lot of reaction? To be honest, no. I mean, it was a question mark, meaning that I knew how seriously they took the assignment. Ben and I joke about this because he had already written for the magazine a few times. We happened to be vacationing together at Martha's Vineyard, which we do every year. And I was working through fact checker questions while on vacation. And he was pissed because these calls were coming in at, at, at all times of day. We might be playing tennis, we were at the beach, we'd be having meals, we'd be drinking, whatever the case may be. And he was like, he was looking like, ah, come on, man, we're on vacation. <laughs> so I did have a sense 
of how seriously they were taking this, this work um, and how rigorously they wanted these essays to be vetted. Um, you know, a little bit of a joke, you know, to the degree that Nicole had a few sentences that seemed to push the envelope of interpretation. You know, I think Ben and I had this conversation. I was like, maybe they weren't fact-checking Nicole as rigorously as I was because, I mean, I'll give you one example. There's a line in the essay where I say that sugar basically became, it was started to be cultivated 10,000 years ago. And the fact-checker was like, no, well, we did the math and it's not 10,000, it's 8,000. And it's like, no, actually, it was 8,000 BC and we're 2000 AD equals 10,000. That's how in the weeds they were of every single sentence of my essay. So I think, yes, I, 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 knew... I think it's often easier to defend fact checkers of which I had been one. It's, <laughs> it's easier to approach facts than it is ideas. And, you know, sort of an essay is much harder to sort of vet from, from that side. You know, it's argument. Which is fair different. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So short answer is, um, I didn't know where this was going to go. I most certainly didn't know it was going to inspire thirty states to consider legislation to ban it. <laughs> so anybody who says they saw that coming, uh, be lying. Yeah, it was almost like maybe this is a bad analogy, but it was like a tsunami. You know, when the water goes out and everyone's like, "Wow, look at this! There's all the look at all the shells and and like they don't <laughs> see what's coming." Right. But so. I'm interested in what it felt like to kind of end up in that maelstrom. Like you have an episode of the show, you know, you play like a little bit of Bill O'Reilly's podcast that you end up on because you're doing a training at a company or a, or a talk at a company. And somehow that ends up as part of Bill O'Reilly's podcast. And you play a bit of you know, essentially a death threat of, or, or a beat down threat would be yeah, accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a challenge, a challenge that, that you're receiving. <laughs> so what is that? feel like for you to end up in that place? I mean, had any work that you had done brought you to that kind of place before? No, but I, I will say uh, two things. First, I was like, thank God for the fact checkers. <laughs> because because I, I, the last thing I wanted was some silly mistake to be fodder for the madness that was ensuing around the project. I mean, e even to this day, when the National Review was sort of putting out its own critiques of the 1619 project, it's singularly fixated on Nicole and here and there, Matthew Desmond's essay on low road capitalism mm -hmm. would come in for kind of a drive by sniping, but nothing else in the magazine. It's as if all those other essays didn't exist. And so I was definitely grateful that I had taken the assignment seriously since I could not have seen that coming. And I also felt defensive of the project and Nicole in particular, because I understood that she had written it as a personal essay that opened up onto these big questions about, you know, what manner of nation is this? And to the extent that it was an invitation to reconsider how we think about the importance of slavery to the nation, people were not operating in good faith. Now, of course, it, it was the Trump era. And so even the notion that people should operate in good faith, well, <laughs> you know, we have lower expectations these days. You asked, though, about had I experienced anything like this before? The only other time that I had been personally dragged into something akin to what Bill O'Reilly did or the threat to meet somebody halfway around the country to settle this um, because I'm the racist in the conversation 
was I'd given a talk right after my book, The Condemnation of Blackness, came out on campus at Indiana University, about two hours from where I'm sitting right now, just north of here. And the next day, the student newspaper ran a headline, Professor Says No Link Between Race and Crime in New Study. And so, you know, I was happy. It, it's a big campus, flagship state university, 40,000 students, a lot of colleagues. You don't make the front page of the paper every day for your research. So this was all great. And then next day, I did a Google search on the coverage of it because I wanted to send it to somebody as an online story. And a hit came up from a website called the American Renaissance, which is run by Jared Taylor, who is one of the nation's prominent white nationalists who ran this website. It's been around a long time. Anyway, I got dragged line by line uh, in, in, in a blog post about it. And there, some people made some threats. And I got a few emails because once it circulated within that community, people then found my Indiana address and sent me some notes. And did you feel more exposed being in Bloomington and being in Southern Indiana? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. When I left, that was about 2010 uh, in the fall. I left Indiana that spring. So several months later, my last teaching evaluations were right on the cusp of the Tea Party Revolution. You know, Obama had been reelected. The midterms were coming up. And I got the nastiest teacher evaluations of my career. But one in particular, I'll never forget. When a student filled in the section of the evaluation that said, what should the professor or the instructor do to improve the course, the student wrote, kill himself. And I was like, you know what? It's time to be out. <laughs> I was like, it's time. It is time to be out. <laughs> and for listeners, Evan's eyes just bugged. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you've got a student in your classroom, it was 220 students. I was teaching a survey course on U.S. history. So in some ways, it was a bellwether of what was to come. Yeah. Because here was a huge swath, a cross-section of Indiana. 65% of our students come from the state. Uh, and it was the Tea Party moment. Obama was president. All that madness was going on. And here I was challenging them about how they think about, you know, the, the nation's history. And, I, and the truth is, I was teaching Eric Foner's uh, textbook, uh, Give Me Liberty, which is thematically focused on freedom. And it, it's not a radical textbook, but it does sort of lift up progressive threads through history as a key theme within the textbook. And apparently it was a bridge too far for some of my students. you guys to the show like what led you guys to think in this moment i want to now enter this arena and sort of talk about race for a popular audience with each other on the show yeah but i've been thinking about this khalil and really oh you now you're talking to me no i mean i've just been thinking about the, the sort of when it, when it really started in this way and it was definitely the trump era you know mm -hmm. that the different strands in the country which were both so robust and completely divided and opposed to one another, grew and grew. So you get something like the 1619 Project and you get something like the Black Lives Matter movement 
but you also get Trump and you get Charlottesville. And I think as this is going on, you know, Khalil and I always are talking and we're checking in with one another. We're sort of touchstones to each other's lives. But our conversations became more and more intense about this divide across racial lines in the country and seeing something happening that felt foreign and terrifying and fascinating and that we plugged into in different ways. Yeah, it just felt like we were talking more and more. And I remember, Khalil, I'm speaking to you again because <laughs> I, I wrote this story. It's okay, about, you can speak to me. I wrote this story about Jedediah Brown, this activist in Chicago. I remember. And who's a Black Lives Matter activist and who sort of is so run down by his work that he, he, the story begins with him attempting suicide. And you read it and you called me right after you read it and you were like, oh my gosh, we should do something together about this. Mm. And it was, like, it was like maybe the first time we were like, let's team up in some way. Yeah. As Ben was talking, I was thinking it was probably all of the controversies around Laquan McDonald that really brought it to a head because mm. Ben was doing such great reporting, such great writing. I gave this talk at the Chicago Humanities Festival. And I remember maybe that was 2016. It was probably 2016. But Ben had written this wonderful piece, and maybe it was the Jedediah piece, where you've been out to Mount Greenwood, um, yeah. this uh, area of Chicago, which is the far south side of Chicago, just shy of the suburbs. And it's, he, a cop, it's a cop and fireman neighborhood because you have to have residency, but sort of, you know, white cops and firemen and, and city workers live as far from the city as they possibly can. It's our Staten Island. Yeah. And what Ben wrote about, tell the listeners what you actually described, uh, what you heard in the crowd. Oh, I mean, for me, this was that it's naive now, but to think of sort of this Trump revolution that happened, but in Chicago proper, on the street, a sort of counter protest happened that a young black man had been shot by an off-duty, I think, police officer and fireman. And so activists came out. And they were met by tenfold many more residents who were all white. And, you know, it was like having dogs out there, the white guys, they were like bikers. And they start chanting, you know, Trump stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is happening in Chicago. They're burning effigies of George Soros, like the sort of stuff that you imagine all over. Now, this doesn't sound like surprising at all. But at that time, it was that first moment of something much bigger and divisive is going on. And this is before the election, right? It's during the campaign. That's right. It's, it's before the election. You yeah, know, yeah. just like a weeks before. And I'm like, oh, shit, I might not be understanding this country in the way that I should. Right. Uh, like, right. like, there's something bigger going on. If it's here in Chicago, uh, it felt, you know, it was, it, was, it was transforming in that way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and Evan, something just to, just to bring this home very clearly, um, I, I had spent five years up to that point from 2011 to 2016 running this Harlem anchor institution, the Schomburg Center, where for all that time, I'd been navigating this conversation about President Obama and sort of what he could or could not do on behalf of Black people or dealing with race or whether or not he was as full-throated as he needed to be to deal with the crisis of police violence and whether or not he was pushing off Black Lives Matter protests as being sort of whiny kids who you know, really didn't understand the intricacies of government. And so looking at what Ben was reporting on and reading it and seeing it up close and then having to like hear all of the excuse making for Obama 
and, and his Department of Justice and what it wasn't able to do, it all became this really important turning point for me, which culminated in this address I gave at the Chicago Humanities Festival, where I literally was quoting Ben's reporting <laughs> in terms of like trying to shake the audience into, we are in uncharted territory at this moment. Like we are moving into a period that none of us in our lifetimes could have imagined what's on the other side of this. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, it feels like these were issues that you were studying and talking about and writing about for so many years. And then to have them come so strongly into the forefront in both a positive and a negative way, I'm wondering how shocking that is to grapple with just in terms of almost being, I don't know if you felt this way, but you know, in the wilderness in terms of trying to get people to pay attention to something and then suddenly everyone's paying attention to it, both the people who want to change it and the people who want to pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I said earlier that we sort of grew up in the 80s when it felt very apolitical. And so suddenly this very strident form of activism is happening and counteractivism. And it felt new in terms of our lifetime and exciting in the sense that young people were doing work that I wish I had been doing as a young person you know, pushing for justice and being very aware of things. And so when George Floyd happens that summer, yeah, just, just how, how unlike anything in our, in our long lifetimes, like we didn't, even in our work, like there isn't, this isn't the past, like we're, we're in this moment and something shifted. Um, and yeah. so there, there also, that means there's sort of like great opportunities, but the, the divisions felt even greater. I mean, I think like when we talk about it, Khalil and I too, there's always such playfulness at the same time and, and love. And so I think even thinking about doing this in front of an audience, it wasn't just going to be heavy. You know, we deal with heavy topics, but just because of the way we interact with one another, and the way that we can speak very openly, that we could model a kind of co way conversation could happen across racial lines, but we could also delve into our topics. And naturally, we were going to make jokes because that's just what we do, even when we're talking about really heavy stuff. And well, go ahead, Cleo, if you were going to say something. No, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, did the, so the podcast really was just an extension of an ongoing conversation we'd been having for a long time. And the conversation simply became more urgent in the transition of Black Lives Matter and sort of the squirreliness of Obama. Ben was doing this incredible reporting on Rahm Emanuel, uh, which led him to also think about a biography on Emanuel, which I thought he should should have done or should still do. Uh, so you can tell we were in the weeds of our work because our work was so fruitful and generative at this moment. And finally, we both settled upon, we like, we should actually Ben called me and said, we should do a podcast together. And I said, you know, that's interesting. I just started a conversation with Pushkin about a podcast and I think I'm going to tell them I want to do it with you. And that, that's, that's literally how it happened. I mean, that's one of my reactions to the show is how, easily you talk about these issues and, and kind of flow from joking around, talking about your histories, talking about pop culture, other issues to getting very serious and trying to dig into these issues. So it does sound like an ongoing conversation to the listener. Is there part of this where in these conversations, you guys are trying to work out something with each other? Or do you feel like you have it worked out with each other and you're trying to display that for the audience? That's a fantastic question. And I think the answer is like, we're even figuring that out as podcast makers, <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, often I think we're telling each other things that are new. And so like we did this episode about prisons 
you know, Khalil and I both visited prisons in other countries and in, in a way to solve for mass incarceration, that, that prisons in other countries are actually operated in a way where they're trying to reintegrate people from day one. It's not about an additional punishment beyond losing your liberty. And so I went to prisons in Norway and Finland, and he went to prisons in Germany. And, we and I was so responsible for his trip, by the way. <laughs> yeah. right. As if you listen to this episode, which, which, he, which he points really, out 40 times. Which He's is like, really important for forget, the listeners don't, to know. Don't forget, yeah. don't forget, yeah. don't yeah. forget. But I've been yeah. his sponsor a long time. <laughs> and, and yeah, we told each other stories about that trip while we were recording, which we hadn't told before. And mm -hmm. so that might be different than figuring something out because it's not like we, we disagreed about those things, but we process them at, this, at the same time. Yeah. You know, I think, I think we, we do disagree about things or we have different takes and probably we, we sort of work some of those out before we start recording. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I think it depends. Um, I mean, we, sometimes we hold back on purpose and want to kind of show each other something and then wait for it, right, to see how the other's going to react. And so the, the editing process, of course, will lean into that sometimes and some of that stuff just ends up on the cutting room floor. But it is remarkable. I mean, we will put points of emphasis in different places, even if in general we agree on the thing itself. Like, you know, we're, all, we're both on one side of an issue on most things, but how we explain what that thing is, how we consider what to do about it, how we express our outrage, if, if we have it, all those things are, are much more nuanced and can lead to tension uh, in the conversation quite often. And, mm -hmm. and I think some of them are about our differences in race. And, yeah. you know, I, I think we're, we're so experienced with that with one another that rather than that being shocking or like awkward, we just sort of lean into that. I mean, so Khalil comes back from Europe and he stopped by TSA and I'm like, you know, that's terrible. You know, and I say to Khalil, like, this is true. Like I wouldn't have been stopped. I it just, I wouldn't have been. And, right. you know, Khalil has this name, Khalil Muhammad. It's after 9-11. They're like, we got you, kid. You're, you're being stopped. <laughs> you know, like we are protecting this country from you. And, and, and you know, like that we, we are aware of that together just because of our, I think, our deep experience together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the title of the show is this play on, you know, a cliche, the response to someone who feels that they've been accused of racism in some way will say, what, but some of my best friends are blank. But then the, the question that I then have listening to the show is obviously when I hear you guys talk about it, you're so comfortable talking about race with each other. And I think a lot of people, let's say mostly white people are uncomfortable talking about it. They're afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're afraid they're going to come off in a certain way in an ironic way. Like is the lesson that they actually do need to have more friends that they can talk to about, about this in a real way. Because when you can talk about these things without assuming there's going to be judgment, that feels where the real productive conversations happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Evan. I mean, it's, it's ironic that both we're poking fun at this cliche and leaning into it. <laughs> so what we like to say is that we can't actually fix these problems if one, we're not interested, two, we're unaware, and three, we don't have the courage to solve for them together. So that's what the show is set up to do. We're, we're as much interested in actually talking through how to understand the problem as well as we are trying to figure out like, what should we make of this moment? All of our shows in 
with some effort to try to make sense of like, what's the next step? And it's not overly didactic and it's not awkward and we're not pretending to have all the answers, but we are attempting to say like, this is a real issue and it can't be covered up by simply ignoring it. And if you can see it for what it is in all of its full dimensions, you have a better shot, right? At bringing people along to get the work done uh, to fix it. Yeah, and I'd say that part of the joke of the title too is that, that our friendship isn't enough or any interracial friendship is not enough to fix deep structural issues in this country. And you know, we're modeling a kind of conversation across racial lines. And it, one, there's actually a funny story. We did a, 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 an interview show on WNYC, Brian Lair, mm. and there was a call-in component to it. I mean, you're gonna mess up all our listeners. No, no. Uh -oh. <laughs> Well, we, we, did a, we, did a, we did a call in show and we didn't we didn't really think about the call -in show. And you could probably imagine every question wasn't about sort of those deep structural things. It was like, hey, my daughter has a black friend in school. What do you think? And we were like, oh, shit. or like, you know, a black woman says, you know, I got this white coworker and she's trying to navigate this space. Everyone was we, we were like Dr. Phil for race. And we hadn't, we hadn't really like anticipated that or like we certainly thought like, oh, that's a misreading of the show. But it also said there was this deep hunger just for, you know, we want to have this conversation and they wanted to be heard. I mean, answering yeah. those questions aren't that hard because you say like, I hear you and these are difficult. And they're like, thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. And, you know, yeah. people want to be heard as they're trying to navigate these. And there aren't answers. There aren't like, yeah. you know, specific answers. So Evan, I just have to add one quick story. So that happened, yes. And we were like, you know, maybe maybe we should lean into that. Maybe that should be a little call-in part of, of like, you know, once a week we have a call-in section. If you have questions about how to talk to your friend about race, call, call Ben and Khalil. But the other side of this is I did a couple of interviews where Ben wasn't invited. And then when, 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 when I was giving the interview, they were like, tell the truth when did Ben say something racist to you? Like, when, <laughs> and, and what did you do? When, when did that happen? Or when was this awkward moment where Ben made you feel like you didn't belong in the friend group? I was like, what are you talking about? Like, that never happened. <laughs> but there was like this assumption that there must have been a, a moment where Ben showed his true white self to me and we had to work through it. And it probably was when you took that $2 bill from me that uh, my you, collection. Yeah, you know that was Aaron. No, man. <laughs> you know, think, no, you know, no, you did it. I think you I mean, did. He stole computers from the computer I, store. Hey, 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 hey. We're going to bleep out the name on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is not being legally vetted. Yeah, no, that, that would not be an yeah, But I had that question too. I mean, that's something that I wrote down, which is not so much like when, when did he break out with his secret uh, beliefs, but more like, you know, have you guys ever had tension over issues or, you know, at the level of, you know, Khalil, you saying, as I've had friends say to me in the past, like, you just don't understand this. Like, there's a way that you cannot understand a thing that I just experienced, even though you're my friend and I appreciate your sympathy. It's just different for me. Like, have you guys had those moments? I mean, I, I will just say this. Probably the moment where I felt least connected to Ben was when he was in college. So sort of I was leaning into a black identity that wasn't as wasn't as intentional 
growing up. I mean, you know, I grew up in a big family, Nation of Islam family on one side, lots of cousins on the other. There wasn't a strong community of like interracial marriage on my family, you know, mother's side, a little bit more on, on actually on uh, the Nation of Islam side as another podcast. But my point is that I felt very secure in my blackness, but I, I wasn't in feeling it in a sociological sense until I went to college. And I think the same thing happened for Ben. He can speak for himself. But I think in that sense, we grew apart. Uh, the distance of college, the experience of you know making new friends. And I remember him leaving college to go to South Africa. And we actually talked once while you were away. I remember actually being at work. I was at Deloitte & Touche. I probably called you on, on the corporate dime. And I think we might have even been planning for me to pick you up from the airport because I picked him up from O'Hare, yeah. right, yeah. from O'Hare. But on that phone call, the combination of like the distance of college and time and, you know, sort of probably growing apart a little bit, not being as close, and then him going away, I didn't feel like we were as close at that moment. And I say this to say, I'm not sure it had anything to, I don't think I was intentionally thinking like, He's a white guy who I'm no longer interested in being friends with because I got my fraternity brothers and, you know, it's the 1990s and, you know, I'm appreciating Malcolm X in a new way, whatever the case might have been going on. But I do think that he probably changed as a result of those experiences and I changed as a result of those experiences. And I think we had to come back and figure each other out under new terms. Yeah. For me, I just didn't want to fuck with an accountant. <laughs> I was like, this corny ass accountant. Like, I'm not down with this Deloitte and Touche. You know, like, fuck that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You're going to hear, Evan, you're going to hear from Deloitte and Touche's uh, communications person about like scrubbing their name from, from this episode. I mean, I, I would just say, in one way to answer your question, Evan, of course there are things, you know, that Khalil experiences that I don't understand. And, you know, that's just the nature. I think we're both aware of that. That doesn't seem like a sticking point. Like, of course. I've been asking Ben for years on the same token to like, you know, record secret conversations that white people have about black people and he, he won't do it. But partly because I guess he doesn't spend enough time around white people. But. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in how you both or each, how do you sort of maintain your, I don't know, optimism or hope if you have it when you're constantly digging into these deeper structural problems? Well, I've got a white guy friend. So I'm like, if the shit really goes down, you know, then uh, it's like the underground railroad, you know, he'll, he'll ferry <laughs> me to, uh, to safety. To Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, although he is Jewish, so I'm not sure it might cancel out, cancel out. you know, these days it's, it's they might clear. That might come for me is what you're saying? It, it, but it might come for both of us. Yeah. I mean, I would say that we also, we're looking at things that are so hopeful at the same time. I mean, so we had this episode that just came out about these artists who were looking at deep structural problems on the South side of Chicago and, and you know. Housing, housing. Housing issues, engaging yeah. through their art. And man, like we were just so excited by it. And it, yeah. it's so like energizing. And of course, like the issues that they're pointing out are deeply troubling. And like you go through this neighborhood of Englewood and the abandonment and the dilapidation because of these housing practices that were predatory. It's, it's everywhere. It's omnipresent. You know, that there, there are other people wrestling with these issues. And there's a kind of 
I don't know. I mean, I felt I felt uplifted by that conversation at the same time that what we're confronting is so daunting. I guess I feel like that, you know, each time we talk, I don't know, we never really feel depressed when we talk. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's something really generative. I don't mean just on the podcast. I mean, when we have these calls, it's like we're in it. You know, our hands are dirty. We're inside the mud and the clay. And we're, we're like, you know, that's the work. There's something always like the next thing. And what are we going to do? And did you see this? Did you see that? Like we're active. I think that sense of being active is really encouraging. It feels like you're taking action. I worry on the other side, maybe more than Khalil, I don't know, but like, I worry what the effect of it all is. Like, are we talking to the same people who are like us? You know, I think about that a lot. Does it reach across these lines? Does it change people's minds? Or are we just sort of, does it feel good like in the same way that we're, we talk to people who are like-minded? Because we want this country to be better. Like we believe in this country. We believe in sort of a, an interracial democracy, like what that would be like, you know? And so, I mean, that's exciting, but it's also really difficult. This has been, then goes on the kind of the white side of the conversation, you know? Cause you're like, uh, <laughs> you, you, you don't like to be hopeful. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, I just want to be able to, I just want people to be able to vote and have water in, in, in line when it's really hot. No, I'm, I'm teasing him. Yeah, I, I think he's right. Like being able to see the show as an invitation to a, not only for us to be intentional about finding stories that we want to share with others. I mean, that's what both of you do as writers. I do it in the archives. And, and so I think that is just uh, really important, no matter what the outcomes are, the process in and of itself of finding, making, and telling stories. And I think that's really powerful. Uh, it's life-giving. Uh, and at the same time, in that process, you are meeting people along the way and you're feeling the warmth of their own ideas and their company. And that's exciting too. Thank you both for coming on the show, uh, for taking this time. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, we've, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly, certainly for somebody who writes narrative nonfiction, this is... Uh... This is a milestone, Evan. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Khalil and to Ben for coming on the show this week. Their show is called Some of My Best Friends Are. You can find it in all of your podcast locations. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find their show as well. I recommend you listen to it. Thanks to our editor this week, Gabriela Saldivia. Thank you to our intern, Noel Matier. And thank you to our sponsor, MailChimp. Always appreciate MailChimp. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. 
The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.